Good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Village. Uh, if you are visiting with us, either with your physical presence or digitally online, uh, let me just say you're very welcome. I um, hope you feel uh, welcome and at home. Um, I'll also say, if you're part of this family, and I know you well enough, and we weren't having to wear masks, and there was no virus to, to spread, uh, I'd want to give each of you uh, like a brotherly hug, uh, and maybe just kind of lean my head on your shoulder and make that sound, um, if that wouldn't be too weird. Um, and I know a lot of you feel that, that same way. Um, really, the past eight months have been particularly hard, for, really for the whole world, but for the last month or so, the last week or so, have been tiring. Thanks, mate. Tiring for us as a church family. I can say for us as a, as a staff, uh, it's been particularly tiring. Um, said goodbye to Luke and Sue uh, last week. That was difficult, a lot of tears. Um, our staff is kind of shifting uh, and uh, bringing on new people and things like that. Um, in some ways, it feels like a lot's changing, uh, but in a lot of ways, nothing is changing. Um, feels like one chapter is kind of closing, but that's not the end of our story, Lord willing. Uh, there's, there's more to come. Um, we've said from day one that this church would be kind of centered around one person, one leader, one pastor, one personality, but that person would be Jesus Christ. So it means that on like an earthly level, on a, on a kind of earthly leadership level, things can, can shift and change, and, and that's okay. Our mission stays the same. Um, our life together continues, um, Lord willing. It's kind of buckle up. Um, still go time. Uh, we still have a, a race to run. Uh, maybe with broken hearts for a little bit, but the uh, Lord will mend that as we abide with him uh, together. So uh, in, in a lot of ways, it feels appropriate that we're uh, beginning our family traits uh, series. Uh, again, we do this every year, usually uh, kind of going into September. Um, usually it's, it's essentially a th- kind of a three-week series of who are we? What is village? Uh, who makes up village? What's our purpose? What do we do? What's the meaning uh, of it all? Um, let me just read you our vision statement. You should be um, familiar with this and maybe just completely bored of this already. Uh, but Village Church desires to be a gospel-shaped community of people who love Jesus, each other, and our city of Belfast as we join God in the renewal of all things. So that's our kind of mission statement or vision statement. Really, a mission statement is kind of says, this is who we are. This is what we do. Um, and and that's, that's it. We desire. We don't we're not there yet. We don't do this perfectly. We fail at it often, but we desire to be a gospel-shaped community of people, a people who are shaped by the gospel, who love Jesus, who love each other like family, like the, the, the brothers and sisters that the Scripture says we've been made into, um, and who then go and love our neighbors and our city uh, and our uh, Belfast, really, as we, as we join God, as He actually puts right the things of the world. He, he mends the brokenness of the world. He renews everything. We get to be part of that. Um, you can kind of summarize that with these three words, uh, gospel, community, and mission. It's kind of the three spheres, three things that make up uh, village, gospel, community, and mission. Uh, I love a Venn diagram. Um, uh, is the next one. So that's a Venn diagram, isn't it? Um, gospel community mission, and right where all of those things overlap is where we want to be. That's where this like tangible kingdom of God is, this incarnate kingdom of God, community. 
Um, that's where we want to be. So really, over the next three weeks, we're going to, to kind of unpack each of those spheres, gospel community mission, um, and then after that, we're going to begin this kind of epic series through the book of Hebrews, and that's where we're going to be for a while, so um, that's going to be fun. Um, but this morning, we're looking at that first one, gospel. Village desires to be a gospel-shaped people who love Jesus. What does that mean? Um, if you were here last week, you saw, uh, we looked at all those pictures of the, uh, really the, uh, the history of village, where we started, where we've kind of ended up, uh, and seeing those pictures, I think, uh, for, especially for some people who haven't been around that long, you get to kind of see, wow, the, what, what, what this is hasn't always looked like this. Um, we, we started in a little living room with about six of us, and, and it kind of just, uh, we eventually got here. But the strategy that we, that we took uh, from the beginning was, was not to start a church, was not to plant a church. Um, we, we, we always said the strategy was to plant the gospel, and, and that grows into a church. It's like uh, Jesus' parable in Matthew 13, Jesus, uh, the parable of the sower and the four soils. So the, the sower plants seeds in, in the soil, and, and hopefully that, that grows. And, and in this situation, it's not the church that we plant, it's, it's the gospel. And, and that gospel seed out of that grows um, village, a church. Um, and, and in many ways, that approach, that strategy has shaped um, what we've done and, and, and how we do church here. So it's, it's really this paradigm shift for a lot of people, this paradigm shift that's affected not just how we've planted a church, but also how our church family continues to, 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 to do the church and to be the church, how we continue to, to, to live as we are scattered through uh, the city. Um, but what does that mean? What does it mean to be a gospel-shaped people? Um, in order to answer that question, you first need to establish what the gospel is, and we're going to spend nearly the, the whole time talking about the gospel this morning. So, um, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, what do we mean by the gospel? Um, we first need to understand what the nature of the gospel is. So um, it's important to understand that, that the gospel is good news, not good advice. So the gospel is news, it's not advice. Um, and this is so important to, to understand. And, and it's actually what makes Christianity different from all the other religions in the world. Um, um, it's not advice. What is advice? Advice is, is, is counsel that you get to help you accomplish something. Um, everyone in the room has probably experienced this b- before. Uh, you maybe have a goal. You have a task. Um, you have something you want to, to achieve or to do. So what you do is you, you seek out other people, wise people, who can give you advice on how to do that. Or you, you, you go on to Google or to YouTube. You see, how do I do this? Um, how, I'm seeking advice on how to accomplish my task or my goal, and that's not the gospel. The gospel is, is news, and news is, is very different from advice. News is a report that something has happened. It, it's, it's that something has been done, uh, someone has, has accomplished something in history, and we actually respond to that. Um, and again, this is what really makes Christianity different from all the other religions in the world, because all of the religions basically offer advice. Um, what you need to do in order to, to meet God or to have peace uh, or to get good karma or to get into heaven or wh- whatever the teaching is, um, Christianity is the only one that doesn't come with advice on, on how to do those things, on how to be reconciled with God. It comes with news that something's already happened, 
Something has been accomplished, and, and we respond to that news. Another way to say it is that every other religion was founded by a person that says, this is the way to find God. Christianity is the only religion that's founded by someone who says, I am God. It's Jesus saying, I am God, come to find you. Another way to say it is the gospel doesn't come through this person, Jesus Christ. The gospel is Jesus Christ. The gospel's not advice, it's news that something's happened and we respond to it. Tim Keller says the gospel, it's not primarily a way of life. And we'll we'll try to unpack that a a little bit because we sometimes use that language a little bit uh, here at Village. And I want us to to make this important distinction. The gospel is not primarily a way of life. It's not something that, that we do. It's something that has been done for us and we respond to. D.A. Carson says, because the gospel is news, great news, it is to be announced. That is what one does with news. Um, So the gospel is this spectacularly good news that is to be proclaimed. it's It's a word to be spoken, to be announced. And all through Scripture you see it used in this way. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, Uh, The word evangelizo, which means to proclaim good news, it's used 23 times. Uh, Psalm 40 uh, really captures it. Psalm 40 says, I have told the glad news of your deliverance to the great congregation. So it's this this declaring this, this great news of something that's happened that has actually rescued and delivered a people from peril. And in the New Testament, it's used 133 times in, in various ways to proclaim good news. It's something that's, something's happened. Uh, something has, has some, someone has accomplished something and it's proclaimed. You might be asking, well, what is, what is it proclaiming? What is the good news announcing? Um, scripture tells us that the gospel is good news announcing that we have been rescued or saved. And then the question is, well, what have we been rescued from? Um, if the gospel is this declaration of good news that, that something has been done in order to rescue people from peril, well, what peril are we being rescued from? Um, the New Testament shows us that we have been rescued from coming wrath at the end of history. Hang with me here. Um, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1.10 says that this Jesus raised from the dead delivers us from wrath to come. Um, go to our passage today, Ephesians 2. Um, I'm just going to read Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. This is our main passage today. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the, the prince of the power of the air. This is Satan he's talking about. Following um, the, the, uh, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And, and, and I, love Paul, I love Paul's language, that is his we language. I think it's really important. Um, because he's not, what he's not doing here is, is pointing the finger and saying, uh, th- uh, these are the sinful ones that need uh, to be rescued, that need to be saved. These are the children of wrath. He's, he's saying, no, th- this is us. Th- this description here is the, is the human condition. 
We, we, he's saying we all live in disobedience. We all are, are following our, our, ourselves and making our, ourselves God in a way. He says, therefore, we, we're, we're all by nature children of wrath. By, but all of us, our, our relationship is, is broken with God. You'll know these uh, famous uh, passages. Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of that sin is, is death, it's, it's wrath. But this wrath that Jesus saves us from isn't this impersonal force. It's God's wrath. The Bible tells us that we are out of fellowship with God. Our relationship with Him is, is broken. And, and listen, I know we all hate talking about wrath, particularly God's wrath. Um, we, we prefer a God that doesn't get angry. God is, is, is pure love, right? How can He get angry? But... Uh, I'd suggest to you that a God that doesn't get angry is actually a God based on a false idea, a false version of love. Because the opposite of, of love isn't anger. The opposite of love is actually indifference. Um, so imagine a, a parent that, that never gets angry at their children's bad behavior. Just do what, do what you want. Um, treat each other however you, you feel. Um, that, that'd be a bad parent. That'd be a parent that doesn't actually love their children. That's my child. Um, I suggest also that um, if we just ignore God's wrath uh, towards our, our sinfulness and, and, and us in that situation, then you actually do two things that I could think of. Uh, firstly, you, you cheapen what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So, so what, what he went through, the, the, the wrath that was kind of poured out on him in our place, this costly demonstration of love that he came to earth to do for us. God's, God's wrath actually makes sense of, of the cross. Um, I'd also, when you ignore God's wrath, you, you have an awfully difficult time exp- explaining the, the ramifications of, uh, of sin in this world that, that we all experience and we all feel deeply to our bones um, in Romans 1, Paul talks about this. He says, what we've actually done is we've exchanged uh, the glory of the immortal God for things of this world, the, the creator for creation. And we started worshiping creation instead, and, and that relationship was broken. That, that Romans 1 is actually, the, the background text for that text is Genesis 3, which is the fall, which is where Adam and Eve disobeyed and, and therefore the human uh, situation, the all humans' relationship has been broken with God. And Genesis 3 actually explains that all the problems and the suffering we experience in the world stems from our broken relationship with God. So Adam and Eve, our first parents, ex- they actually experienced a perfect world. They experienced a perfect relationship with God. But read Genesis 1 to 3 and you, you see that because of their disobedience, Sin entered the world, and, and, and humanity's relationship with God ever since has been out of, out of joint. It's been broken, his, and, and His wrath has, has many ramifications. And Keller points this out, and he says, because of that, because of our alienation, our, our alienated, because we are alienated from God, he says we experience a few different things based on, Gen- on, on Genesis 3. He says uh, we, because we are alienated from God, uh, uh, we are uh, psychologically alienated within ourselves. So Genesis 3.10 says that, that we now experience 
shame. We experience fear because of sin. And because we are alienated from God, we also are socially alienated from one another. We experience that. We know how, how much strife there can be between humans. And verse 7 in Genesis 3 describes Adam and Eve then uh, had to put on clothing. There's this now, this like separation between them. Verse 16 speaks of there's alienation and tension between the genders now. Verse 11 to 13 shows this kind of blame shifting. Well, it was her fault. It was, my, it was, it was his fault. He also goes in and he says, because we are alienated from God, we are physically alienated from nature itself. So we experience sorrow and painful toil, physical degeneration and death. You see, even the ground itself is cursed because of human sin. He writes this, he says, since the garden, we live in a world filled with suffering, disease, poverty, racism, natural disasters, war, aging, and death. And it all stems from the wrath and the curse of God on the world. The world is out of joint, and we need to be rescued. I think we all experience that. It's hard to, to, to argue against that. He says the root problem is not these horizontal relationships, though they are most obvious. It is our vertical relationship with God. All human problems are ultimately symptoms of the problem, it's our separation from God that is the cause. The reason for all the misery, all the effects of the curse, is that we are not, we are not reconciled to God. Therefore, the first and primary focus on any real rescue of the human race, any, any real renewing, any real uh, mending of the brokenness, the main thing that will save us is to have our relationship with God put right again. And... and this is where we get to the center the, 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 of the message of the gospel. This is when it, it, it's not just news, but it's, it's amazing news. The gospel is news about what has been done by Jesus Christ to put right our relationships with God. The gospel is news about what has been done by Jesus to put right our relationship with God. So we have a broken relationship with God, and we are by nature disobedient, and keep reading in Ephesians 2, once you get to the next section, and Paul says, hey, remember that you were once separated from God. You, you were alienated uh, from Him. He, he goes to far, as far as to say, you, you once had no hope. You, you were without God in the world. He sums it best. Uh, he, he sums up our condition best in, in chapter 2, verse 1, when he says, you were dead. You, you, you were a spiritual corpse. Verse 4 says, but God, <laughs> being, what, rich in mercy, because of what? The great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show us the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He states His point again. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not, this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's a gift. Not a result of works. Not as a result of what you've done. Why? So no one can boast. Church, becoming a Christian 
is, is about a change in your status. Once you were dead, and now you are alive. Once you were alienated from God, strangers, aliens, uh, but now, he says, your status has been changed to be fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. And how has this been accomplished? He says, by grace. It's a gift. You've done nothing. Jesus has done everything. Verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are now far off, you've been brought near. How? By the blood of Jesus. Romans 5, 9 says, since therefore we have been justified by the blood of Jesus, shed on the cross, that much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. That's amazing, amazing news. That God saves sinners. That God loves sinners enough to save them from what's to come. We who were dead, who were alienated from God, far from Him, strangers, enemies of Him, have been made alive, have been brought near, have been made into sons and daughters citizens and saints, members of God's household, saved from the wrath of God. How? Because the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. We simply receive this gift of grace. We receive what's been accomplished for us. We respond to that news, that event, that someone has accomplished something. By grace you have been saved. Romans 5, 6 continues, says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's, Paul would say, that's us. That's us, all of us. Verse 8, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died in, in our place. Uh, Martin Luther calls this the wonderful exchange. He says, that is the mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange our sins, our sins, are no longer ours, but Christ's. And, and, and uh, the righteousness of Christ, his perfection, is not Christ's, but ours. He, he's, he's this wonderful swap, this wonderful exchange. He says, he has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. He has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. In the same manner as he was grieved and suffered in our sins and was confounded, in, in the same manner we rejoice and glory in his righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what Jesus has accomplished for us. Um, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, really helps show us these three things. Uh, firstly, it shows us who we were, dead, um, in need of the gospel, broken relationship with God, children of wrath, that's who we were. It also shows us what God has done, that the work of the gospel, that he, is, he has brought us from death to life. And thirdly and lastly, it shows us who we now are, the people who are shaped by that gospel, who are shaped by that event. 
Look at verse 10. Because we've been saved by grace. It's, it's not works. It's, it's not what we've done. It's, it's what he's done. He's done it all. But look at verse 10. This is who we now are. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, prepare, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love that, that word for workmanship is so special. And it, it, it means his masterpiece. The Greek word's poema. It's, it's, it's where we get the word poem. <laughs> You've been made from being dead. The being, a corpse is, is good for nothing but rotting. You've been made from rotting spiritual flesh to a poetic masterpiece. Isn't that amazing? Because of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross, he's made us in Christ Jesus. We are now his masterpiece. The, 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 the thing he, he, he's most proud of. This is my masterpiece. Created for what? Good works. So salvation isn't received through the good works. It's by grace. It's a gift. But now, we are, now that we are reconciled with Christ, now that we are in him, he wants us to now walk in newness of life. He wants us to, to, to do good works, to, to behave. As, as a result, though, as a consequence of the gospel. Philippians 1.27 says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Another way to, to say that or to translate that is to behave as citizens. L- live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. It's because the gospel, because of that, you're now citizens of heaven. You're now sons and daughters in God's household. Walk like that. Respond to that. The new life we're to live is really the results of the gospel, and that's where we want to get that right. And we, we, we've, we've established what the gospel is. We don't want to confuse what the gospel is with what the gospel does. We don't want to respond what the, the, the news that that event, this thing that's been accomplished with what the results of that, how that affects our life, how it shapes our life. Keller says the gospel is, is not about something we do. The gospel is not something we do, but it's about what has been done for us. And yet, the gospel results in a whole new way of life. And, and that church is, is where we want to be. That, that's what it means to be shaped by the gospel, a gospel-shaped community of people. Of people who are not only saved by the gospel, but, but are shaped and molded by it, who live in light of it. A gospel-shaped life is a life that is informed and is transformed by an event. The gospel, although it is an announcement of news of something that has been accomplished for us, it also affects virtually every aspect of our lives. Leslie Newbiggins talks about the gospel now being for us like a set of lenses. It's not as something that we merely look at, but something that we look through. It's how we view the world now. Um, I found that helpful language over the years, that, that we, having now been reconciled to God through the cross, we now live our lives in light of the gospel. We, we now, uh, that, that good news now informs every decision we make. It, it's, it's how I view the rest of the world. Big things or small things, 
The gospel is now the lens through which we view the world. It's how we interpret everything. It's how we view relationships, etc., etc., etc. And it's really what we've been talking about the past few months as we've been looking at the parables of Jesus. We said the parables of Jesus, the purpose of them is to real, reveal to us what the kingdom of God is, what life in this kingdom is like. So the gospel brings us into this kingdom of God, but it also informs us how we're to live as citizens in the kingdom, uh, walking in, manner, in a manner worthy of the gospel. Keller says the gospel is not just the ABCs of how to become a Christian. It's the gospel is the Z, A to Z of Christian life, of the kingdom life. The gospel changes everything. It can be applied to literally every single thing you do through your day, or it should. It's accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel, but then we are transformed by, uh, transformed in every part of our minds and hearts and lives by actually believing the gospel more and more and more deeply as we live our lives. That's why we use the language preaching the gospel to yourself daily, preaching the gospel to one another, remind each other of the gospel, help each other to believe that more and more deeply because that is what transforms us. That's what um, we, we actually, uh, by, by preaching ourselves the gospel every day, we let it inform our life decisions. And really, you can apply the gospel to every aspect of life. Here's a few examples. We should let the gospel shape the way we view our relationships. So apart from the gospel, we can either uh, value relationships too much so that they are where we find our identity and our value, our worth. They're connected to, to whatever a, a relationship we have. Maybe it's a father or a mother or um, a, a boss, a brother, a girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever. Like that's where my identity and my worth is. We can overvalue relationships. We can also value relationships too little. Um, I, I don't necessarily need anyone. Um, I, I'm self-sufficient. I'm independent. I don't need anyone else. But the gospel changes the way we view our earthly relationships and uh, in, in that we, we no longer uh, do we need others to, to give us an identity. So we, we've actually been given a new identity uh, in Christ through, because of the gospel, an identity that's actually connected to someone who will never leave us, who will never forsake us. So earthly relationships can, can end, can, can wither away, and so then can your identity and your worth but if that's connected to Jesus, then that can never be taken away. That can never be undermined or crumbled. In the gospel, we've been chosen, accepted, treasured, and kept in Christ. So we don't need to look outside of ourselves to other relationships for that identity and that meaning. In the gospel, we no longer need to fear relationships that cost us. Because of the gospel, we can now move towards people who might not reciprocate our love and the reason being is because that's exactly what Jesus did for you. He, he actually get, gave up his rights and his preferences to, to love us and befriend us even while we were enemies of him, his sinners, even though some of us won't reciprocate that love. Because of the gospel, we've been given uh, new Christ-like minds and are able to, to actually humbly count others as more significant than ourselves 
and, and to look to the interest of others over our own. That's Philippians 2, 3 to 4. The gospel changes how we say goodbye to one another. Hopefully you experienced that last week. That's why we call them gospel goodbyes. Because of the gospel, goodbyes don't have to crush us. They hurt. They don't crush us, though. Because for those who are in Christ, goodbyes are, never, are not forever. It's actually what informs us is, that, is in the gospel, Jesus is the one who actually experienced a relational, a relational separation far greater than any separation we can experience. The gospel changes the way we approach earthly relationships. And this past week, um, you may have got my emails, we've received some kind of criticism online uh, because we hold to a complementarian view of, of men and women. Uh, basically, we believe the Bible teaches men and women are created in his image, that's Genesis 1, created in full dignity and full value, but that we do have, have, have different but complementary roles in, in family and, and church life. We're not exactly the same, same and equal, same uh, in value and dignity, but maybe different roles. And, and that's one thing. I can understand how we can um, have conversations and have different points of view on that. Um, but these posts were particularly difficult to read. I know some of you found them difficult to read because they completely misrepresented our actual views on, on the subject. Basically, the, the post painted a picture of village that... Um, of being a church that doesn't think women can be part, can lead, that doesn't think women can, that, that doesn't think men can learn from women. Now, the role of the elder is like the top job of the church. Um, but if you've been around this family, you'll know that none of those things are true. We actually believe that without both men and women, and present in the church, leading in the church, that you actually fail to have and experience the, the, the full image of God. That, that means that not only do we want women to be present and leading and heard, but we actually need that in order to, to know God and to experience who He is. The church needs both spiritual mothers and fathers. Um, and I don't want to get kind of lose track here because this sermon is how we apply the gospel, how the gospel shapes us. But this has been a, a huge example for me personally um, the past couple of weeks. How do I apply the gospel to this situation? How, how, do, how does the gospel shape how I feel and, and how I react to, to skewed accusations? The gospel tells me that we don't have to be afraid of rejection, of mocking, of accusations because our Savior saved us by enduring those very things. We, we don't fear rejection because Jesus saved us by rejection. He actually tells us we can expect more to come. The gospel also shows us that the next time I, I, I meet kind of face-to-face -face, um, my accusers, I can actually extend kindness and forgiveness and gentleness rather than fretting and being angry and fighting back. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for me. In the gospel, I was the enemy. I was the, the, the accuser.
But Jesus didn't fight back. He, ex- he instead offered forgiveness and grace. The gospel changes everything in our lives, big or small. The gospel should shape the simple things in our life. So we use that phrase, ordinary people doing ordinary things, but with gospel intentionality. Just doing normal life, tiny things, but in a gospel-shaped way. So it means our driving to work, and chatting to your neighbors over your fence, ordering a meal at a restaurant, bathing your children. The gospel should shape even how we do those ordinary things. Bathing your children can be a difficult one. <laughs> Uh, these little humans that I love so much, they're messy and they're getting me wet and my whole bathroom wet at the end of my day when I just want to sit on the sofa and relax. And, and, and how do I extend grace and patience and mercy to them? I don't know about you, but I can't just conjure up more patience and grace and love. The only way I can do that is by remembering the gospel. When I remember the gospel, how can I not extend grace and patience after Jesus extended to me infinitely more grace and patience and love when I was messy? The gospel shapes how we parent. The gospel, that that one event in history, shapes and informs how I spend my money, um, I, so I don't need shiny things uh, to fulfill me or to give me joy because in the gospel, Jesus has actually given me something of infinite greater value himself. In the union with my creator, a, a future inheritance that is eternal. And it's actually because of that gift I can then be generous with my money. I, I, can, I can choose to, to spend it on things that advance the, a heavenly kingdom rather than spend it on things that will eventually fade away forever. Am I making my point? The gospel changes everything for us. Changes the way we view and experience sexuality. Changes the way we view family. It changes the way we view race and culture. It changes our politics. It changes our self-image. It changes the way we experience joy and humor. The gospel powerfully changes everything. The gospel should shape everything in your life. It's a response. It's a being just awestruck by what he's done, what he's accomplished for us. And it's that dumbfoundedness that we then go and live differently in this upside-down kingdom. This is the importance of Daily abiding with Jesus. We're talking about daily reminding yourself of the gospel, of what he's done. If you're not doing that daily, there's no way you're going to be shaped by the gospel in your days. It doesn't happen by accident. This is why we preach the gospel to one another and abide with him daily. Village Church desires to be a gospel-shaped community of people who love Jesus, who love each other, and love our city of Belfast as we join God in the renewal of all things. Let's stand and we're going to pray. And Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. 
Even that simple sentence just seems cheap, seems not good enough. But that's exactly the way grace works. We thank you, Lord, that you've brought us from death to life. You've made us from strangers and aliens and enemies into family, into brothers and sisters. Simply because of your mercy and your steadfast love for your people. We don't deserve your grace, Lord, but we thank you for it, and we ask that you would continue to open our hearts and our minds, and may we be transformed. May every step we take be informed by what you've done. We will fail. <laughs> we, we will continue to, to get it wrong at times, but instead of um, feeling shame, instead of feeling fear, we come back to the gospel, come back to the cross, and we remember again what you've done for us when we were dead. Lord, may that be what our church is centered around. May we not be distracted by peripheral things. That's exactly what Satan would love to happen, God. May we be centered on you, centered on your gospel. Make us better, Lord. Continue to shape us. Continue to, to make us more and more like Jesus. Show us when we're wrong. Keep us humble. And we love you, Jesus, so much. Pray these things in your name. Amen. And we're going to um, partake in this meal that is all about remembering the gospel. Um, uh, we do this every week. This bread that's been broken that reminds us of his body that was broken for you when he didn't deserve it, but you did. The blood that was poured out, that's what the wine reminds us of. His blood was shed instead of ours. Um, we're going to come, uh, we're kind of make our way from front to back. Um, come in your wee groups, uh, serve one another, announce to one another, proclaim to one another, his body broken for you, his blood shed for you. We proclaim that to one another daily and weekly to remind ourselves. Um, just take that cup back with you. You can do that in your seat, and then you can kind of take that as, as, we, uh, as we leave later, okay? Um, let's worship. Let's uh, remember and let that lead us to praise.